Welcome to the Envision Rise podcast show, a podcast that helps foster respect through inclusion, service, and equity. Now here's your host, Stacey Hegarty. Welcome to the Envision Rise podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Hegarty, Vice President of Equity and Inclusion for Envision Rise. Our guest today is Julie Kratz, author and Chief Engagement Officer of Next Pivot Point. Hi, Julie. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Stacey. So let's get right to it. Why don't you first introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Well, like you said, Chief Engagement Officer over here. In my own business, Next Pivot Point, I started this almost nine years ago with the hope to bring inclusion to the workplace. I spent 12 years in corporate before starting on this journey, and I never fully saw myself reflected, didn't feel included, certainly didn't feel a sense of belonging in the workspaces I got to be a part of. And so for all those reasons, I started this business to help other leaders lead inclusively, have the tools I was not equipped with as a people leader. And it's evolved into you know, conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion, allyship, and had a chance to write some books and host some podcasts of my own on the subject. It's definitely near and dear to my heart. You've been doing an awful lot in the last nine years. Uh, how many books have you written? You've written three or four that I am aware of. Yeah, in our children's book. That's really my passion area, our little allies children's book, which I know you have. And I um, do. <laughs> it's really a passion project is how do we have these conversations earlier, especially amongst you know so much of the misunderstanding and pushback that's unnecessarily happening in our education spaces. If only caregivers, parents, educators had tools, had discussion guides, had kind of some do's and don'ts, some pointers before they stepped into these conversations, I think they'd go a lot more smoothly. So that's where we started a nonprofit. Our Little Allies organization is just getting kicked off the ground right now with our new executive director. And I couldn't be more excited oh, that's to see exciting. what'll happen next. Yeah. Well, let's back up a little bit. And you focus a lot on allyship. And really, you know, first in the context of adults, but then moving into the little allies. Talk to me about allyship. Talk to me about why it's so important. What is it? How do people do it well? How do people not do it well? And, you know, first let's talk in the context of adults in the workplace or out in the community. And then we can talk yeah. about little allies. A little oh, bit for sure. More. Yeah, we'll stay in the adult lane to start. And allyship, and that's where it was born, right? I was doing a lot of gender equity work, women's leadership work, and it dawned on me one day, like, men probably need to be a part of this conversation too. Mm -hmm. At the time when they were afraid, not knowing what to say or do. This is before the Me Too movement. I actually, coincidentally, one of the books I wrote was called One, How Male Allies Support Women for Gender Equality. And that was literally published on the day the first Me Too story broke. Well, I shouldn't say first Me Too, but the most famous one, mm -hmm. Toronto Brook, of course, started it many years before. But <laughs> fast forward to today, it's like, oh, how timely was the message? And it just occurred to me that if we had more allies, folks that are in the majority group, meaning you know, those that identify as men, cisgender, same gender identity of which you were assigned at birth, straight, able-bodied, non-disabled, et cetera, that maybe white people, we would have more of a productive conversation around the issues that marginalize these different identities. And so that's where the work started. And fast forward today, it's really about broader dimensions of diversity. How can I support somebody that's different from myself, Right. And not only does it feel good to share that power and privilege with other people, but it transcends in a way that those in marginalized groups cannot necessarily 
defend. You know, the message comes across very differently from a white person versus a person of color about racism because it doesn't feel pun intended. You have skin in the game. Right. And so if you're doing something that doesn't feel self-serving, people have a different listening capability to that. And we often listen to people more like our own identities too, with affinity bias. So that's why allyship is so important. And every day you can show up as an ally. This doesn't have to be this convoluted, huge thing. But it is a set of consistent, intentional set of actions over time. It's not, you know, reading the book and having a book club. It's, hey, I'm going to recognize that we're a privilege and I'm going to do more to support, to amplify others, to mentor others, to sponsor others, to, you know, raise the voices of others, to follow others, diversify my network. You know, so many different action steps you can take as an ally, but I would encourage folks just to take one step and then take another step and then take another step because it's progress over perfection. And you and I have had conversations before about how inaction, no matter why the inaction is happening, is actually kind of harmful. And people start off with really good intentions. You know, that book club people signed up for at work to read White Fragility or, you know, whatever book it was. I don't think anyone goes into that with ill intent. People want to do well for other people. They want to do right by other people. But it's kind of fallen off for a lot of folks. And you're right that the book club is not enough. So what are some really concrete steps people can be taking? You know, what are those little steps every day that make a difference that will help people truly become an ally, an advocate, or an accomplice, as opposed to that savior behavior that we've got to be really careful about. Anyone who thinks of doing allyship work yeah. can very easily step over that line from ally into let me try to save you. And that's not helpful either. No. And I think for obvious reasons, but so many of us do that with positive intention and don't realize the harmful impact of it, right? Because then you teach somebody that they need you and that's not sustainable. No. And it's really diminishing to someone <laughs> say, okay, because of this part of my identity, I somehow don't matter as much as the other voice in the room. So it's very minimizing and tokenizing to those that are already being harmed. And it kind of creates this heroism around allyship, which is the opposite. Allyship is not about you. It's not about the rescue cape. It's about thinking about the kind of support that someone needs and showing up in a way that they need the support without making it about your ego. Mm-hmm. It's not a self-proclamation. You know, it, one of my favorite stories about that. Well-intentioned men as ally in training, literally in my training program, you know, really excited after first session. And I always recommend, you know, baby steps, right? Like come back to another session, maybe dig in deeper. Well-intentioned shows up and he's like, I'm going to be an ally. He finds a group of women having lunch together and he goes up to them at work and says, I'm here to be your ally. I'm in this men as allies training and I'm here. And they all, you know, rolled their eyes much like you are right now. (laughs) Like, no, thanks, buddy. Like, go away. It's just not the way to show up. And like, he was so disheartened. Like, what did I do wrong? And now I don't want to do anything. You know, I'm paralyzed with fear. And again, it's all about me. So it's not a self-proclamation. It's in the eye of the beholder. So I think that's the first thing. If you just go into it knowing it's not what you think you're doing right. It's what others recognize you for doing. That makes it a heck of a lot easier to pay attention to the feedback you're getting. Mm-hmm. And well, I often- think it's such a different experience when, you know, it, for that presumably white man to say, I'm here to be an ally, chances are he doesn't really have any idea of the lived experience of those women sitting at the table 
that he was wanting to ally for. <laughs> right. It's like, you need some context. So I think step one on the ally journey is always education. If you don't have the lived experience, like you said, who do you know that you already have trust with? So don't burden the group to educate you. But if you have somebody that's already trust, you know, and for the case of men as allies, you probably have a woman in your life you can ask about their lived experience. And if you compare notes with two or three and you hear the same common issues, there's probably a lot of truth to that being a universal experience of folks of that gender identity. So that's one, educate yourself. Of course, there's books, podcasts, resources. We've got like a 10 page resource list on our website, for example. So there's no shortage of content out there. Education, step one, fill in the gaps. What do you know? What do you not know? Figure out how to figure out what you don't know yet. (laughs) And I'm holding up your book right now, Allyship in Action Workbook. So talk to me about this one, because I think this is a great, this is a great step-by-step, I think, for anybody. Oh, yeah. There's close to 30 activities in that book. And we partnered with an instructional designer to craft it in a way that's very detailed step-by-step. Literally say this, do this. So team building activities you can do at home, reflection activities you can do on your own. Because after you have some education, that's exactly the next step is have conversations with people about this, especially people that I wouldn't say don't get it and don't want to get it because that's a cautionary tale. Lots of energy for maybe no results. But people that don't get it, that want to get it, that they just don't get it yet. I love that. Like just yet. So just because they don't get it doesn't mean that they can't, you can't help support them and getting them further along in their journey. So allies create other allies. It's a multiplicative effect. So if you can model the behavior you hope to see from folks, engage with folks in conversation, and then I think you have to naturally just get comfortable with the uncomfortable. People are going to say things and do things that are shocking. I have close friends and family members that say deeply problematic things. And it's like, I know you to be a good human. How is this coming out of your mouth? And so getting familiar with talk tracks and curiosity statements, like, you know, I used to think that too, you know, here's what shifted for me, or here might be a way to say that more inclusively, or I'm curious why you said it that way, right? I'm curious what you meant by that. If you can just get comfortable with those inquiry phrases and give most of the time with people to walk themselves into the answer themselves, right? If you blame and shame them, like you're terrible, you're a racist, not probably going to go well. That's probably not going to end in a healthy place. But if you said like, Hey, that's a real problem in the black community. And here's why I just want you to understand that could be perceived very negatively by other people. I know you're a great person. I know you didn't mean that, but please think of another way to say that in the future. You know, (laughs) that kind of conversation can really prevent a lot of harm from happening to other people and keep an ally in the game. Because what happens is someone steps in it, they make a mistake, they get blamed and shamed. And now they're like, never again. Mm -hmm. I will never talk about this again, which is like, you gotta have a heck of a lot of privilege to think you can't talk about this. Yeah, yeah, can't talk about it or better yet, won't talk about it. That's the ultimate statement of privilege because- For most people, we don't get to not talk about it on some level and not talking about it is really kind of a grown up tantrum, if you ask me. And I'm taking my marbles and I'm leaving, you know, I have to leave now because you, you made me feel weird. (laughs) It's all about me. (laughs) So what do you recommend people do? People who are, you know, trying to be an ally, trying to get there who make a mistake and someone corrects them on it. And maybe they don't correct them in the calling in sort of way that you do, but rather the more aggressive calling out, 
hey, that was really racist, knock it off kind of way mm -hmm. that a lot of people do for a lot of different reasons. People have that reaction. So what would you recommend to a, an ally who gets called out? Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to underscore that, you know, for some people that have been harmed for the course of their entire life, they're exhausted and fatigued. And if they call folks out, I mean, there's a level of accountability here. So I'm not here to say shame and blame the caller outers, but if you do get called out, you know, just try to take the high ground. Yeah. Uh, what I try to reflect on is like, oh shoot, this, I might've had good intentions, but the impact is obviously not good. Okay. And this person may have been harmed by people that look like me a lot in their life. So they're probably carrying a lot of weight into this conversation too, that created maybe a more magnified response than I thought was justified. And then three, be curious if you get called out, like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you own it and say, would you mind helping me be better next time? Right. And you don't want to put the ownership on the other person again to educate you. But asking for feedback, if someone's boldly, you know, shared something, an observation they've had, dig in deeper, figure out if you don't understand and you really want to get defensive, try to just lapse that defensiveness for five, 10 seconds and ask a curious question. And oftentimes when you do that, you can meet somebody in the middle. They'll chill out. They'll calm down a little bit. You chill out, calm down a little bit. The emotions come down. Sometimes it's a circle back conversation too. I don't think every conversation needs to happen live. You know, coming back to it the next morning, the next day, sleeping on it, it's okay, but we need to have the conversation. What can't happen is us just you know, picking up those marbles and leaving like, it didn't go well, so I'm never doing it again. That's not an option. That's not an option for most people. Please don't think that's an option for you. Well, and I think that, you know, as we have the national conversation on how divided we are as Americans this contributes to it when somebody picks up their marbles and decides they're going to go home and they're just not going to participate in this conversation any longer. That doesn't help us find unity. That doesn't help us get on the same page. My opinion is that when someone does call you out or call you in, does not matter how it's presented to you. They are presenting you with a gift that you may not realize you want or need in the moment, but that later you realize how much you either wanted it or needed it in order to continue your journey. Yeah. Feedback is a gift. It really is. <laughs> Remember the first Even time I got an email like that, I was like, hmm, I don't want this gift. I want to give it back. <laughs> but you're right. On the other side of that is learning is growth. We can't grow without constructive feedback. Well, let's talk now about Little Allies. And I'm holding up your book, which is, this is a wonderful children's book. If folks are looking for a way to start having these conversations with your little ones, because this work is so much easier starting young. It's like learning a language. It's so much easier when you start young. So talk to me about your not-for-profit Little Allies. What can people be doing with their kids? Let's dive in. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that question. You know, this is so important right now in a divided, polarized situation. You know, pay attention what's happening in your local school system. That's one of the first things that you can do because these issues that are meant to be nonpartisan are emerging on school board elections. They're emerging in the classroom with DEI practitioners at school districts. So I would encourage folks just to pay attention to the conversations that are happening in your local community and voting matters. Voting absolutely matters. Representation matters. So if you feel strongly about your values and connecting to inclusion, 
you know, make sure that your voice is being heard in your local community. Mm-hmm. Two, one of the most impactful things you can do is have these conversations with your kiddos. Most people don't. So 60% of white parents never talk about racism with their kids. That's the opposite, of course, for black and brown communities. If you don't think you have to have the conversation, like think about that, right? And young kids, I mean, you want to meet them where they're at. So of course, the conversation would be very different with a three-year-old versus a 12-year-old. But as kids, I have a nine-year-old. And what we know is the research is a developmentally kind of peak for a conversation around this around age 10. So fourth, fifth grade. That's why Little Alice is a fourth grade reading level book, but it's really can be read from K through five. The intent though, is that they are cognitively at a space where they can understand fairness and unfairness, and they can have a more, a deeper conversation about systemic issues that have led us here, right? When they're younger than that, you know, explaining things like slavery, it's just very difficult. Like my eight-year-old is like, racism doesn't make sense. Now, when she's nine, she's starting to see it. She's like, oh, I get it now. So putting the pieces of the puzzle together, why 10 is so magical is by age 12, our biases are pretty well cemented. Mm -hmm. So we've got this really great developmental. So for people, you don't have to have kids, but do you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year olds, have a conversation with them, ask them what they think. There is some wonderful content out there. Brain Pop, I believe has some really great short videos you can watch and just say, Hey, what'd you learn from that? Like, Mm -hmm. that's what you don't even have to do the work. Our activity book, of course, you know, things like draw a leader. What do they look like? I mean, most kids draw a white man because they've already learned, you know, patriarchy and racism. So there's lots of ways to start the conversation, have the conversation. And then the last thing I'd say is really diversify your media. If you're around young people, you have kiddos, look at your bookshelf, look at your Netflix patterns, look at where you consume media. Is there diverse representation? You know, there's actually a little known fact in children's books, there's more protagonists that are animals than kids of color in totality. Really? Right. Think about that. From a kid's perspective, they're seeing more animals than kids that aren't white. Like that's wrong. That's not okay. And 50% of protagonists are white and mostly boys. So what are we learning? Presumably able-bodied, straight, you know, we're just And then the messages in diversity books are usually very overt about diversity is good, difference is good, which is great message, but kids don't necessarily want to pick that up from the book shelf, you know, they want a story. (laughs) So that's why I wrote The Little Allies is a story that just happens to entertain kids while also educating them about all the dimensions, not all, but as many dimensions of diversity as we could fit into a fourth grade reading level book, because most of them isolate gender, race, et cetera, which is great. But if we talk about it universally across dimensions of diversity, you have a richer conversation. Well, Julie, we're coming to the end of our time together. This has flown by. This is such a good conversation. Where can people find out more about Little Allies and about the work that Next Pivot Point is doing out there in the world too? Yeah, everything is there on our website. So nextpivotpoint.com is where you can find all of our corporate stuff. And we link as well to our books and the Little Allies. And then littleallies.org is our brand new website that we're putting together where you can donate, you can buy products, you can make inquiry about services. So we work with educators, parents, and caregivers to have conversations about inclusion in all spaces of our lives. Well, Julie Kratz, thank you so much. We appreciate your time today. For our listeners, if you've got questions about Envision Rise, you can find us at envisionrise.com. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, diversity and inclusion should not be treated as a one-off initiative. And so with your help, 
we can get this message to more people. Subscribe, rate, and review the show and be a part of making a difference because it starts with you.